Not that long ago, the story about health IT and electronic health records went something along the lines of, when are these hospitals and office practices going to get their act together and adopt and implement these new technologies? The uptake, even with government and financial incentives, seemed just too slow. Fast forward, in the adoption rate since 2009 and 2010 has doubled and quadrupled in physician practices and hospitals, respectively, according to a recent study. All for the good, except the new tools aren't always intuitive or time savers, as hoped. And patient safety has become a mounting concern the more the EHR, warts and all, becomes the hub everyone relies upon to drive care. The problem appears to be the technology itself and whether it does what we need it to do to safely and effectively care for patients and how healthcare professionals and staff are using the technology. Plus, what is that information that's just so important it needs to also be flagged and communicated verbally? Remember that? We're logging onto the computer and the electronic health record on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So a lot of great minds and ingenuity have gotten us to the amazing functionality of health IT and the EHR. So I hope I'm not being overly optimistic in saying that great minds, plus a lot more perhaps real-time experience among healthcare staff and patients will help shape the solutions to the safety problems. That's what our guests are going to take a stab at today. I'll introduce them in just a moment, but first here's IHI's John Gothier with me in the studio with some reminders about how to take part in this WIHI. John. All right, thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to make everybody uh, have the best program for this afternoon. Uh, on the right of your screen is our chat window. If you tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions, so make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens the floor for questions. This allows everyone on WebEx to see your questions and comments and answer. Now, there are a few ways that folks have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged on to the computer and listening to the program by streaming audio coming through speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner labeled Audio Broadcast. If you're on a slower or less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat, but a simple solution to any audio hiccups may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. If that problem persists, please let the folks at iChai Customer Service know, and their number is up on the screen right now. Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slide, I've provided a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive over at ihi.org WIHI, along with today's chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at ihi.org, and they'll send them your way. And finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on WIHI, and we need your help for that. Please take some time after our program to fill out a quick survey and let us know how we've done. Back to you, Madge. All right. Thanks so much, John. And reminder, Twitter, Twitter, if you like to <laughs> tweet during or after the show, thanks for using at the IHI. That's our handle in your tweets. So let me now briefly introduce our guests. On the phone, two people. Anne Bazance is a professor and chair in industrial systems and engineering at the State University of New York in Buffalo. Her research involves cognitive engineering for complex systems such as healthcare. A big welcome to you, Anne. 
Thank you very much. Glad you're here. David Klassen is with us. He's the Chief Medical Information Officer at Pascal Metrics. He's an Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Utah and a consultant in infectious diseases at the University of Utah School of Medicine. David is widely known for his expertise on patient safety, computer-assisted decision support, and information system technology, among other things. Welcome, David. Great. Uh, thanks very much, Madge. It's a pleasure to be here, everybody. All right. Uh, so we're going to introduce Frank, and then I, you can can you tell that David is raring to go here? I'm raring to go. All right. Thanks, hold Madge. on one second. And in the studio with me is our very own Frank Federico. He's an executive director at IHI. He oversees IHI strategic partnerships and works in areas of patient safety, application of reliability principles in healthcare, preventing surgical complications, and improving perinatal care. And many of you may know that Frank is faculty for the IHI Patient Safety excuse me, Executive um, Training Program. So welcome, Frank. Thank you, Madge, and welcome to everybody. All right, so Frank's going to help me kind of nail this whole thing down with all of you and our experts, um, and we're going to go right off to David now. I do want to say one thing at the very, very top of the program, and again, welcome everyone who's joining. We plan to talk about some cross-cutting issues and themes today, um, regardless of the particular electronic health record or health IT vendor. So we're not going to discuss or comment on any particular companies or products. All right, with that, David, you've been in this patient safety and health IT space for a long time. Um, you're keeping a close eye on what the safety concerns um, are that are bubbling up, and I'm curious how that information is uh, becoming known. And are we at a point where the EHR is starting to figure in known adverse events and patient harm? So um, take it away. Thanks. Great. Thanks so much, Madge, and welcome, everybody. Um, and I'm going to give you several perspectives on safety in the EHR. I'm a user of the EHR, so I practice medicine, and when I take care of patients, I'm deeply involved in the EHR. I work at a hospital where the only way you can care for patients is with the EHR. And so I'm well familiar with getting more than 50 alerts a day. I'm well familiar with uh, reading notes, progress notes that are yesterday's notes, copied and pasted forward. So I'm, I'm really aware of these issues. In addition, I've been a researcher in this area since uh, the late 80s um, and have built tools and ways to, to use electronic health records to both measure safety but uh, also to prevent harm to patients. So I think we've made a lot of progress in electronic health record usage. The Meaningful Use Program has spurred broad adoption of electronic health records. If you look at the latest data from HIMSS Analytics, uh, in the third quarter of 2014, 88% of United States hospitals have gotten to advanced functionality with electronic health record systems, the more complicated things such as computerized physician order entry and documentation. And almost 30% of ambulatory clinics have gotten to uh, uh, use of more advanced electronic health record systems. So we've made enormous progress in adoption. But of course, along the way with that rapid adoption, we've seen the development of safety problems. And this was predicted by an Institute of Medicine report on health information technology and patient safety published in 2011. And I was one of the authors of that report that said, as we broadly adopt uh, information technology in healthcare, we are going to learn the lessons of other industries that it's not just about the technology, but it's about everything else. 
And uh, as you can see on this slide, one of the things we talk about that and report is how important it is to understand how this technology is used within a larger context. That larger context we call a socio-technical system. And that context includes not just the technology, but the people, the organization, the process, and the external environment. And we expect that as technology gets rolled out, these other issues will come to the forefront. And indeed, they're beginning to come to the forefront as we presaged at the Institute of Medicine report. And so a number of issues that you heard me just talk about, over-alerting, problems with uh, documentation, et cetera, are coming to fore. Now, we are clearly much safer with this technology than without, but I think we're in a phase now where we can begin to learn about how to more effectively use it. And one of the things we called from our, in our Institute of Medicine report was building a learning system. Um, because this is clearly complex technology in perhaps one of the most complex environments on Earth. We can't get it right the first time, so we need to build a learning system that uh, instructs us as we continue to evolve and optimize these electronic health record systems. Because I think one of the first things we've learned is once you've put it in, that's just the beginning of the journey to, use, to uh, optimizing it for more effective use. And this is from a large study of an organization that's been attracting uh, and following EHR safety with their own internal learning system. And this was a large study of events, safety events related to EHR, and it outlined basically that a lot of these events reflect problems in how we not only design but implement and optimize that uh, EHR technology. And so I think this is an example of how we start that learning journey and, uh, Madge, I think we can go to the next slide uh, as well. Um, and some of the solutions that might deal with these unmet needs are now being revealed as we learn more and more. I think the challenge here is this type of learning system about EHR safety really only exists in one organization in the United States. And our challenge moving forward, if we can go to the next slide, Madge, is how we begin to broaden this out nationally to other organizations. And as part of that, a new federal center is being created called the HIT Safety Center that's being led by the Office of the National Coordinator in coordination with the FDA and the FCC that might actually help us start to begin to measure safety because unfortunately, safety related to EHRs is not something that we do a good type, a good job of reporting. So just an example, if we look at one of the leading centers in the United States, uh, ECRI, who tracks safety-related problems, and you look over a long period of time, you learn a lot about safety-related issues. But that's all based on voluntary reporting. If you then look at organizations that have built automated surveillance to detect safety problems as they occur, much like you get when you use Microsoft Word and an error detects and they ask you to report it, something much like that, uh, a single hospital can have more errors found in a year in wrong patient orders electronically than get reported in 10 years to voluntary reporting organizations like uh, uh, ECRI. So clearly, um, uh, we need to move further in how we track these issues, and this is part of a, a federal effort to uh, improve our uh, learning system, if you will. Next slide, please. 
All right, I think those are the four we captured. Which one are you looking for? Because if we don't have it, you can talk about it, and we promise we'll grab it. I think those are the ones we grabbed for all, you. All, all I would say, in addition yeah. to what I've already said, yeah. is that there are a number of approaches that can help organizations optimize their installed EMRs for more uh, effective and safe use. And one of them is a new set of guides produced uh, by the Office of the National Coordinator called the Safer Guides. And they're basically guides uh, okay. to how one can analyze their existing uh, electronic health record system and uh, evaluate how they're doing with respect to best practices and then uh, basically use that assessment to uh, continually improve. And part of uh, those safer guides is the use of a test um, that was created with funding from Robert Wood Johnson, California Healthcare, and the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality uh, that's currently made available through LeapFrog, uh, which will become more broadly available given new funding in this space that allows hospitals to test the safety of their operational systems as they uh, currently exist today. And lots of organizations have used that test, uh, but still less than 1,000 hospitals in the United States have used it. It's a wonderful tool for improvement as we forward. So, uh, so okay. those are two wonderful resources, uh, and we can make them uh, available to right. you uh, on the website, right, Matt? Absolutely. We have actually collected, we just captured some of these images here that you're seeing uh, from some of the research and studies that David um, pointed out to me and we've shared with you. We have many, many more in a resource document that we're putting together that will go along with the um, uh, page tomorrow on IHI.org uh, for the whole program. And also, I do have a link to those safer guides from the Office of National Coordinator and uh, just don't have it right in front of me, but we'll promise that we'll, uh, we'll, we'll provide that as well. All right, David, before I turn to Anne, I just want to ask you one more question because I know we flashed a lot of information uh, up quickly for people in terms of these screen grabs from the articles, which of course everyone can download. And by the way, if anyone's just joining by phone, forgot to say this, you can get your slides from info at IHI.org. So um, if you had to just stand back and say, so whichever way we're now coming to understand what the most common safety issues are, anecdotally, through studies, et cetera, et cetera, um, what are the biggest three to five uh, issues that people, uh, that you think actually, not so much what everyone is complaining about uh, or, or annoyed about, but what maybe pose the biggest safety risks? Yeah, I, I think uh, the Institute of Medicine report there is, uh, to, uh, on health IT and patient safety basically said the risks fall into two categories. Can the EHR, as it's currently implemented, actually lead to the injury of patients? I think it can, and it's related to um, uh, clearly design and implementation and maintenance. Um, and then the other issue is, can the EHR fail to prevent harm? Um, and there are clearly several examples of that. A lot of that has to do with, are we actually using the EHR to make sure, for instance, that we're not giving drugs to patients they're allergic to or might have drug interactions with, but also we're not using the EHR to measure safety. Um, and several of the articles we outlined uh, reveal that in broader, uh, more significant detail that um, uh, these problems relate to not considering how we use the EHR in the socio-technical milieu, not considering workflow, not considering interoperability, uh, not considering uh, decision-making and how we use it. And uh, so I think they're, they're probably uh, match the major issues as I see them. Okay. And they play a role in my practice 
practice when I have to use the EHR to uh, take care of patients and have issues related to uh, all of them in my daily practice. Okay. Thank you so much, David. And uh, from the calls we had planning, I sort of threw into my copy about the program uh, – you know, some of the things that were noted have to had to do with a lot of copying and pasting of information and moving it forward, adding more and more information without anybody reviewing it or reviewing its accuracy. We also talked about uh, systems whereby somebody can be looking at multiple patient uh, record screens at the same time and may inadvertently start putting things into the wrong records. That could happen because of disruptions uh, or interruptions or distraction, um, that type of thing. And also a lot of this uh, we've, I've been noting in, in the literature a lot of scrolling and looking for <laughs> the most pertinent <laughs> facts in a lot of text uh, and a lot of things. And, um, and now we've got Anne Bizanz, who knows a lot or a fair amount about design, to sort of help us understand some of that. So, uh, Anne, uh, it seems sometimes uh, David didn't quite talk about hand-to-hand combat, but it does seem as though there's this daily struggle going on that's all of, not all of a sudden, perhaps, but now kind of bubbling up and pitting clinicians against these very electronic tools that everyone has said are so necessary going forward uh, in a system that's going to do things more efficiently and effectively. So um, what's going on here, and have we sort of missed something in terms of the engineering and design uh, of these tools? Thanks a lot. Um, sure. Thank, thanks for having me. Um, so what I'd like to, you know, comment about is the role of engineering and design in these systems. And I think that people are very quick to cite human error or blame the clinicians or other users, right, when they get into these conflicts with the systems. Um, and say if if people were only doing a better job using them, then the EHR would have the impacts in terms of safety and efficiency that everyone is hopeful that they're going to have. Um, but from where I come from, which is a human factors or human systems engineering background, we look at these problems in the same socio-technical realm that David was talking about in a broad view, and we've done it for years in a wide range of industries, including aviation, nuclear power, manufacturing systems, defense and security kinds of systems. So in all of those systems, and from my perspective as a human factors engineer, the issue comes down to one of design. That is, how can we create systems that are easy to use, but also that are useful to clinicians, and that are helping them with the parts of their work that are the parts that are difficult and challenging without adding unnecessary work. And I want to point out that this is always the responsibility of the designers. It's not end-user customization um, to make those things happen. This has to go on as part of the fundamental design process. Um, and one thing I want to say is that you can't design systems to design complex work like healthcare based on, say, static procedures or mimicking the paper forms or the paper charts that people had previously. Um, people are very smart, and I want to quote, I was at the Human Factors um, and Ergonomic Society meeting last week, and I was on a panel with some uh, very nice experts in studying complex systems, and one of them, uh, his name is Robert Hoffman, said something like, I didn't quote him exactly, but people don't do tasks. They make context-sensitive, knowledge-driven choices among activities. So it's the job of systems designers to support those choices. Um, so I want to give, if I have time, a couple examples. Oh, and sure. one is that, yep. sure, um, 
some years ago, I was uh, working with some physicians and learned about a, a new system that supported emergency department triage. And that system was really designed to mimic the existing triage forms. But in mimicking the forms, it required the nurses to enter information in the order as it appeared on the form. This created a big problem because the patients don't remember information about themselves in order. So at the end of the conversation, they'll say, well, wait a minute, I take a baby aspirin every day. Is that medication? Or did you mean not just hay fever allergies, but that, you know, I got a rash when I had this medication a couple years ago? And they couldn't back up and fill the information in because the form was so sequentially designed. So what the workaround that was created was that they hand wrote everything on the old forms and then typed it into the system, which of course created inefficiencies and also led to opportunities for error because information could have been missed or they could have been mistyped. So it, it, what's so frustrating from a design standpoint is that all you would have had to do was sit and watch the triage process to understand that you had to give people flexibility in how they filled out that information. So it was clearly a design flaw, not one in that the nurses weren't following the triage process. Um, so that, from my perspective, or from the human factors engineering perspective, we're strongly involved in watching how people work, understanding the co complex decisions that they're trying to make in order to make the systems fit the workflow but also make the information that's coming out of the systems and being displayed. And I know you and David mentioned, you know, paging through pages of textual information. That information system might be designed to capture information, but it's not doing a good job of representing it in a way that's supporting the caregiving task. So we know within human factors engineering, we have methods to study work as well as general design principles that can help us design these systems. Um, so for instance, if we're designing like a, a, a CPOE system, we can do things to make sure that really critical information is highlighted using different kinds of display features. We don't want something, I call it a Skittles display. If you can think about a bag of Skittles that you dump into a bowl and there's all those different colors all mixed up and you don't know where to look. We have much, we can be much better than that in terms of design to highlight important information. But beyond that, we have to make sure, and for instance, in a CPOE, which uses some sophisticated rules and basically automation to figure out potentially, say, drug interactions or where a particular drug shouldn't be given to a patient. If that system isn't 100% reliable, we need that lack of reliability to be very transparent to the caregiver so that they know under what circumstances they should rely on the CPOE to be looking for those drug interactions and when they should make sure they're doing additional checks. That's an issue in terms of overtrust of automation, which is something that we're concerned about in a wide range of industries, even down to what the, if we all end up getting a Google car, what we're going to be able to do with that Google car on the street, when we should trust it to drive and when we should take over ourselves. So we need to make sort of features of that automation transparent to people. Um, and then I'd like to say something about a couple of misconceptions, and I think I caught this in one of the comments about the digital divide. Um, the first misconception is that clinicians are simply resistant to using new technology. And I'd just like to say 
at least all of the clinicians I've seen, everybody's walking around with the latest smartphone in their pocket, or they're driving cars that have new technology in them. People aren't resistant to technology. They're resistant to poorly designed technology that doesn't help them get their work done. And I think that's sort of, it's a bit of a cop-out on the designer's point to say, oh, if everybody would just get over it and use the system, things would get better. And then the second misconception is that we can yell at people or threaten them or train them, and that will get us around the problems that technology is putting in their way. So we can't overcome poorly designed technology by yelling at people. And sometimes when I'm teaching this, I give the example about the tires on our car, right? We know that the tires are only going to, you know, sometimes they're going to skid if it's very icy, and if we run too long or too hot, they're going to wear out. And we don't yell at the tires, right? We, rec we recognize that they're in a system, and those tires in that system have limitations and breaking points. And that's no different than people. People have working memory limitations that we, we, are, we are very, you know, we have a lot of information about when those limitations are going to occur. People get distracted, but they get distracted in often in medical contexts by important interruptions. Other things have to get done. Patients in an emergency department, a new, more critical patient comes in and someone has to interrupt your work. We have to design systems that take into account what we know about human cognition and the, the kinds of things that are likely to happen when people are using technology. All right. Well, that's a lot uh, to think about. I No, it's great. I really, really uh, appreciate it. And um, as we, we're going to hear it. Thank you very much, Anne. And um, I think building on David and now Frank Federico uh, kind of reminding us of what's the point of all of this from a safety perspective. Um, and um, before we go to chat, um, or maybe as we get the chat underway, I'd uh, like to think about you know, some of the principles that are going to help us. Uh, Anne is sort of starting to um, articulate th some of the things we need to better understand as we move forward in designing the things or fixing some of the things that are out there now. So Frank, uh, David referred to a learning system earlier. and. Um, you know, perhaps uh, there's been too much of a sense that somehow we were going to implement these things and press go uh, and didn't really think about the kind of iterative learning that would have to happen. At the same time, we've been trying to make sure all this really aligns with uh, safety issues. So remind us in a way of that kind of framework that we need to have as, as we move forward with the electronic health record and health IT. Thanks. Thank you, Madge. As as we think about healthcare and the complexity of healthcare, and both Ann and David refer to that, um, we follow patients in a particular way. Uh, patients don't react to us the way you would expect your smartphone to react. So, although we think of what Apple has been able to do to design their systems to be so easy to use, it's not that straightforward in in healthcare because even when we have our own low-tech systems, we work very hard to find standardized processes so people can follow them. But even then, there's always that option with flexibility. And said, you could play with paper, you could make it do different things because you don't, you're not locked into a particular process. I guess the areas where I really get worried is when I hear somebody say, if only, if only we had the technology do that, if only the EHR could do that for us. And I want to be cautious because Systems can't be everything to everybody. And so you have to understand what the uh, 
what the system brings as advancements, but also what its limitations are. And I think about when I talk to people, what are the workarounds that people have developed? Because the minute you see a workaround, it means the system's not working the way it was designed. And whether that be in the office setting where you might have a default for a particular medication to be given three times a day, and I have colleagues who are still working in the retail aspect who save these examples for me where the doctor uh, prescribes a particular antibiotic to be given three times a day. It defaults to three times a day because that's what's in the system and then goes into the comments field and changes the directions. So he has to work around the system. And when he gets to the pharmacy or the patient looks at the prescription, there's confusion there. The other area that we worry about is something David mentioned as well, is alert fatigue. How many alerts come through? And I would worry very much that uh, when we are working with organizations talking about technology, I'd like to ask how many times have people ignored alerts because there are so many of them and the significant ones get uh, avoided. Um, I think this may go back to David when we did our work together way back in some of our safety collaboratives where we said if you can't do it with paper, you can't do it with vapor. And by that we really meant was uh, not as Ann said and described how flexible the paper low-tech system is, but what we were really saying is if you can't change the culture of an organization in getting them to use a protocol that would help guide the prescribing or a, a treatment plan or whatever it might be, just putting in a computer system isn't going to guarantee that it's going to work because somebody will find a way around it or they won't use the system the way it was designed or the as we heard earlier that might be copy and paste because they feel like I've just got to fill that box in and get it done and so the culture change the the technical and the social aspects of these systems become really important and many of the vendors uh, I think have been thinking about that. But we need to look outside of healthcare to understand how people have designed the system so that they become easier to use and change how people do their work. At the same time, I think computers shouldn't drive how we deliver healthcare. Computers should assist how we deliver healthcare. They should help make it easier for us to do the right thing. So if you can't find a patient's notes, it's easy enough with electronics to find oh. them. If you need an alert about a lab result that needs to be followed up, technology should make that a lot easier than having a paper-based system that we have recommended many times in practices because the technology was not there yet. So putting it all back together, there are many things that have been reported that are negative, but there are also some studies that indicate they're positive. It's the work that David Bates did, David Klassen with alerts, et cetera, um, indicated that technology can support it, but it has to be well-developed, well-implemented, and well-followed up. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Frank. We're going to go to chat in just a minute, and I do appreciate all the comments. Uh, Frank, you are in some ways already addressing um, – somebody's question about sort of what do we know in terms of, you know, the degree to which um, these systems are helping versus not helping, you know, in terms of what impact they've actually had on patient care. Maybe we can talk about that more in a minute. David, I want to just circle back to you just before we uh, open things up uh, to all these questions and comments. And you started to talk about um, – the uh, the possible safety center, uh, HIT, you know, at the federal level, some of the evaluation tools that LeapFrog has. Are you aware of organizations uh, by their very nature of kind of understanding how their staff and clinicians are using or having difficulties that are starting to also get out in front of 
uh, systems that might be more intuitive, might better match kind of some of the design ideas that Anne was talking about. You don't even have to name any organizations you don't want to, but are you aware? Is this something some organizations are taking on themselves? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, um, it, it clearly is a sensitive issue, so you probably won't see organizations advertising this fact, but there are health systems, there are clinics, there are hospitals, there are patient safety organizations that are already beginning to focus on how we create a learning system such that given the fact that the only way to get to success here is to iteratively learn and improve, taking a lot of the concepts that Anne uh, has talked about. And so there are organizations that are uh, pursuing this uh, path. And indeed, 900 hospitals last year took the LeapFrog test. And what we've learned from the five years that this has been available is a lot of organizations who don't do well on that go back, study it, learn, and improve the next time they take uh, the test. So we know this is going on, but there isn't a lot published on these organizations and are not publicly reported on these organizations. And the challenge here is there's a lot of learnings going on, but they're not being shared. And so that's the point of the new federal HIT safety organization is to start to harness these learnings uh, and put it in a format that we can all learn from. Uh, and I think that's going to be the real challenge going forward. It's clear there's not going to be really uh, traditional regulatory oversight of health information technology. I think that's already been pretty much decided. Um, and so I think the future is how do we build national learning organizations that can leverage what individual organizations are learning on their own. Okay. Thanks, David. Um, okay. Let's do this, John. Just a quick reminder of uh, chat. Some people have obviously already figured it out, and we'll, we'll dive in. Thanks. Just make sure that your uh, questions and comments are addressed to all participants in the send to field down there in the chat. Right. All participants use the chat feature. Uh, that way we can uh, we can all see it. And um, I, I want to say my heart goes out to somebody in the chat who was talking about <laughs> the color gray as your eyes are aging. I'm looking at a computer screen that decided gray was the normal color, uh, very subtle and cool. But <laughs> to me, it's floating on this page. So if I miss a word here and there, folks, I hope you'll forgive me. I'm going to have to get a telescope. Um, so, all right, we've got a, a number of really, really interesting interesting questions coming up here. And I think in the spirit of that learning system, I think, folks, you can think of yourselves on this program today as part of the learning system, uh, not only just hearing what we all have to say but um, and asking questions, but sharing what you're learning yourselves. And if you're involved as an organization or maybe a collection of organizations in uh, developing uh, ways to capture things that are problems and solutions, uh, that would obviously be really interesting to hear about. So a very concrete thing uh, was asked, and I've been reading about this, scribes. Are scribes helping? Are scribes one, <laughs> is, is that a help? Is that the human person we need in there? Uh, Anne's point about, you know, when we need human beings, when we need technology. Uh, who wants to talk about uh, scribes and what we understand? And uh, I think I can uh, safely say, since I sat in on a medical appointment with a scribe recently, the doctor invited somebody in to basically be typing. Um, all kinds of things and entering things and looking things up uh, as the doctor and I were having a conversation, but there may be a more elaborate definition. Um, David, should we start with you on that one? Yeah. Um, um, you know, when I um, uh, uh, go to see my doctor um, um, with an EMR, uh, my doctor used to spend most of the time while I'm interacting with my doctor 
uh, writing or looking information up at the computer. And it really, you know, uh, was a barrier to my personal interaction with my doctor. So a couple of years ago, my doctor hired a scribe, and uh, now the scribe sits in the room with us and puts the uh, information to the computer so that I can have more of a personal interaction uh, with uh, uh, with my physician. And so I think this reflects the fact that workflow was not well dr- addressed when we built these systems and we turned uh, the, often the healthcare provider into a documentation scribe rather than a caregiver. And I think the scribes are our ongoing learning about how to make the system uh, perhaps meet better the needs of me, the patient, which is I'm really looking for an interaction with my doctor, not someone who sits in my appointment and just takes notes and looks at the computer. So I think it reflects, in my view, a learning system approach to how to improve this. All right. Thank you. Go ahead, Ann. I have a... Yeah, so I I also think this emphasizes something that I mentioned briefly um, when I spoke earlier, which is that so the scribes are solving a problem with getting data into these systems and it, you know making the workflow match how care is being provided in terms of how data is being collected and entered into these systems, and they are of course EHR means electronic health record, but we still we. It, we want to move those into things that are supporting, say, more complex diagnostic decisions or reviewing the records themselves. And we also, so I think there's workflow on the input end and maybe scribes are the workaround to help with that. But, and I'm not a physician, so I can't comment because I'm not using the systems myself to make these decisions, but I, my assessment of them has been that they're about collecting data, not necessarily the representation of that data for the different kinds of tasks that people want to do with the information after the fact. And that could be from a physician standpoint or a nurse or technician or even the patients themselves once we start giving patients access to information that are in these in these records. Okay. Thanks very much. Did you want to so, say something, Frank? I, yeah. I agree. I think uh, the role that, and the way Ann described it and, and you and both David described it, there's a, a role there. But remember, they're not the only people putting information into the system. Nurses have to use the system, et cetera, et cetera. I could give you a story of how um, when I was working in the hospital setting, we were developing a web-based system to order chemotherapy. And it was led by a nurse and a pharmacist, and we thought we had developed a good system until the oncologist looked at it and said, this isn't how I see my patients. It didn't flow. It wasn't the right people developing the front end. But having said that, we knew what the input we, we knew what the output should look like for pharmacy. We knew what it should look like for nursing. We then said, well, figure out how the front end should look for a doctor so that we know what the output looks like help the doctor figure out what the flow looks like so that the doctor can then see the patient. And it's up to the technology to make it easier at the other end. Um, That's why we have technology. It should be able to do that for us. Okay, thanks. I appreciate that. So we've got at least one question in here about interoperability, referring uh, both uh, internally and externally to the organization. And that, of course, comes up a huge amount. Um, We've been hearing about that also recently in terms of public health systems and just health IT overall. So that takes us a little away from the electronic health record per se. Um, But uh, is that, is is the interoperability issue, uh, David, um, help us understand uh, where, where does that figure in here in terms of any of our safety concerns? Well, uh, uh, 
you know, uh, Madge, interoperability has several meanings. Uh, on one level, it's technical interoperability. So many hospitals have a separate laboratory system from their uh, EMR system, and interoperability means getting data reliably uh, and accurately from the laboratory system into the EMR system. Um, and so that's been a big focus of uh, federal uh, standards work, which is how do we make sure that uh, in the average hospital there can be more than 30 different clinical systems? How do we make sure that information flows easily and reliably from one system into another? That's the technical version of interoperability, but there are other versions and other thoughts about interoperability, and some people might view interoperability also being a socio-technical interoperability so that I, as the physician, easily can look at the nurse's notes, the nurses could easily look at mine, and we can communicate between those two systems easily. And I can tell you that as these systems have evolved in hospitals, I have less interaction with other care providers because I'm often putting orders on a patient uh, on a, one unit. I'm doing it on another unit, and I'm expecting the submiss system to communicate it with the nurse. So there is the socio-interoperability socio as well as the technical interoperability. Most federal efforts have focused mainly on the technical interoperability. What about this issue I'm seeing? I don't know um, if this is related or not. I, I saw at least one or two questions. The national patient identifier. Um, I'm sorry, that may not. I may not quite know what that is um, because maybe it's being called something I've, I'm not familiar with. But um, is, what, what is that referring to? So, uh, Madge, that's referring to the idea that the ultimate interoperability for patients as they move through aspects of the healthcare system from their doctor's office to the hospital and then to their insurance company, et cetera, is that there'd be one sort of national identifier for each patient. So each ah, system, okay. as you move between it, would understand it. Several people suggested that the Social Security number uh, be that uh, national identifier. Congress basically has ruled that out. Okay. So in, in effect, what a lot of health systems do is create a, a unique identifier within their system so they can follow the patients throughout it. But it, it remains a big challenge. Okay. Thanks a lot. A sticky – oh, go ahead, Ann. Yep. I was just going to mention, um, you know, there, it, when systems aren't interoperable in terms of having the data available and moving between the different, view, the different views or the different kinds of providers, whether it be the lab, whether it's radiology, whether it's a – uh, physician's office, what you get is more opportunities for error because people are copying things from one one system to the next. And that's not something that just occurs in healthcare. Um, a long time ago, I watched a reconstruction in the Emergency Operations Center in Los Angeles for the, the it was the 10th anniversary of the Northridge earthquake. And there was a county computer sitting next to a city computer, they couldn't talk to one another, and somebody was sitting there typing information from one into the into the other so that the information could get back and forth between the two systems. So we see it in other in other places besides healthcare, but what it in addition to it being kind of a lousy job, right, to be the glue that holds these two systems together, it really increases opportunities for error when people are having to do that kind of transcription from one system to the next. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, let's see, I've got a, <laughs> Frank is trying to communicate, but because I'm looking at him with my reading glasses. What, do you, what does that say? <laughs> so, Madge, I, I um, don't want to lose some of the bigger issues here, one of which is as part of a safety culture 
leadership has a role in all of this. So as we think about safety, we've heard some of the issues, some of the good things, some of the bad things, how to design a system. And uh, we contributed a commentary to the American College of Healthcare Executives on the role of leadership with technology and safety. And I think it's really important to remember that the accountability for all of this really rests with leadership. You can't just say, well, we put in a system, everything must be safe, because we know that even in the best design systems, something may go wrong. And leaders have to be accountable and hold others accountable to figuring out, so who's who can help fix it? And when I mean accountable, I don't mean blame anybody. But it's really a responsibility of ensuring that we have the right people in selecting the systems, we have the right people who are monitoring how the systems are being used. Uh, we heard earlier about a reporting system, having that culture where people can speak up when something goes wrong or have a place within the hospital where you can share. Because we have, uh, I can tell you of an example of one system where because of the way their order entry system was designed, they had an error on one unit, then they had an error on another unit. But yet it happened three or four times and there wasn't a system of bringing that all together until the risk manager one day it hit him and said, wait a second, I think I've seen this error before. And together they were able to identify that there was a common problem that everybody should have learned about immediately rather than waiting until it happened three or four times. And that's really the role of leaders to make sure that that system is in place. They don't have to do it all, but they do have to make it important for it to be in place. Thanks, Frank. And I think that just uh, underscores the notion of learning systems at all levels um, so that these connections and patterns can be seen. David, uh, you had a, uh, there's a question here, uh, just somebody asking you to maybe spell out a little bit more when you say learning systems. Um, somebody is saying those are intriguing notions, but where do you see their ownership residing? Government, vendors, professional organizations, all of the above? What, what do you think? So so, uh, Madge, in, in the Institute of, uh, of Medicine report on health IT and patient safety, we said that uh, the learning system needs to be a shared responsibility between uh, vendors, basically, uh, uh, users, and, and the public environment. So, if you will, a public-private partnership. And I think if you look at other industries, that's probably been the most successful model that we've yet seen. And unfortunately, the learning system now exists mainly at the local provider level, uh, the local hospital or the clinic. And we have not really seen that expand to include the vendors, and we've not uh, seen that expand to include the public sector as well. I think the best example of a learning system around HIT safety is the one in the article that was published by Meeks that you, I think, have posted, imagine, used a, um, a, a couple tables from. Okay. And that's included within a health system, the VA health system, and they've done a great job of creating an internal learning system. I think that's probably not been well replicated in other health systems in the country. I hope it is. But then we need to new, move beyond that because a lot of the lessons can remain within the health system alone. That's probably not a good idea. Okay. And again, those um, resources, every time those get uh, referenced, just a reminder to everybody, they'll be in a document that we post to the website tomorrow. And I, I heard you about to say something, I think. <laughs> I was just going to mention that um, it, there is a learning, uh, relatively well-developed learning system in another safety-critical industry, which is in aviation. And um, NASA and the FAA uh, have run this for a number of years. It's called the Aviation Safety Reporting System. And all mem pilots, air traffic controllers, co-pilots, other members of the staff can input 
misses, you know, near misses, critical incidents into these system, into this system, and it's available for researchers and people who are trying to understand how what what problematic trends there are with new technology, with any of the technologies or any of the systems and procedures themselves. So it's not just about uh, technology, um, but about the whole aviation socio-technical system. And then others can learn from uh, others can learn from those reports. So it's not unheard of in terms of having sort of a nationwide system that goes across different vendors and across. Uh, Different providers of aviation, so it's not just it's not just Delta system or American Airlines, right? All the everybody uses it. So that's and, and, go ahead, David. Yep. And 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 just to build on what Ann said, uh, we outlined several of the aspects of what that national learning system might be in the article, uh, Madge, that you pulled uh, a table from uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Informatics Association. Okay. Okay. We'll see if we can actually pop that slide back up. There were two couple of them there. Okay. Uh, I want to just acknowledge, by the way, I want to thank uh, all the folks who join WIHI from anywhere, including outside the country, the U.S., and our friends in the U.K. who are contributing uh, some of their thoughts and ideas about what's going on there. Some folks have wondered whether uh, U.K. Uh, countries there are experiencing some of the similar issues and maybe have some solutions. So feel free to chat away, because remember, this chat transcript is something you can download uh, for further reference and follow-up. Uh, two things. Uh, earlier on in the chat, somebody brought up uh, one of these sticky issues, and that has to do with a lot of the agreements with vendors and non-disclosure. And I know this is not a show where we're going to solve uh, that issue. Uh, but maybe, uh, David, you can just give us your, your broadest sense about whether people should be thinking that that somehow prevents the type of learning system that some of these very proprietary agreements or what can be shared, and um, maybe we could just address it in, in a very general way. Yeah, I think in the Institute of Medicine report on HAT and patient safety, we spent a lot of time on this, and so you can get that report and look at it. But I think we identified two real barriers to creating a learning system here, which is vendor agreements with uh, hospitals and health systems that, number one, um, they um, uh, might have gag clauses in those agreements that would prevent those organizations from sharing uh, safety learnings, uh, obviously safety being a very sensitive issue, and, and that um, uh, those organizations, um, uh, those vendor con contracts, uh, uh, you know, might prevent uh, the health system from uh, either sharing those learnings uh, or, or aggressively looking for uh, those safety problems and reporting them. So we have very specific recommendations in the IOM report uh, about how federal authorities might address those issues, and so you can go look at it and see. Okay. But it has a long discussion about how they inhibited learning. Okay. All right. So that's an ongoing issue, and uh, it's kind of always sort of interesting uh, to be reminded that all that work that goes into some of these IOM reports are still quite relevant, uh, and a lot of the thinking there uh, still uh, very, very much could be applied today. Um, and I guess one. One other broad issue I want to ask, somebody brought, brought up the question about meaningful use. You've spoken, of course, David, and that has been a very, very central issue and goal right now in the country. I guess my, my question is whether the meaningful use focus uh, and the incentives and all the um, 
kind of spirit around that, uh, as well as some of the dollars, um, has in, in any way uh, contradicted some of what needs to happen with safety? Um, are the, have these things been sort of traveling on parallel paths in any way? Well, it's David again. I think the first goal of meaningful use was broad adoption. I think that that goal has been met. Uh, I think the second goal was uh, the use of certain functionality that we have uh, uh, measured uh, in terms of, uh, you know, computerized decision order entry, um, uh, you know, uh, the ability to apply clinical decision support uh, for high-risk areas, uh, the ability to share information with patients, the ability to do medication reconciliation. I think that was the next phase of meaningful use, which is to broadly adopt those. And I think the third phase of meaningful use was impacting patient outcomes. And I think that's the one that, uh, uh, you know, there's probably the greatest challenges with right now. And uh, uh, the question is whether the incentives will still be there for us to get to that for a third phase, that uh, third stage of meaningful use. Okay. All right. Thanks. All right, John, quick uh, uh, mention of some relevant stuff coming up here at IHI, and then we'll uh, sort of get some wrap-up uh, remarks. Thanks, John. Great. Thanks, Madge. Uh, well, if you're interested in finding out a little bit more about patient safety with health technology, like we talked about this afternoon, one place to look would be for our Improving Patient Safety with Health Technology Expedition, which begins in January of this year. Um, with the IOM, the Joint Commission, and others warning about the potential harm from using health technology, the expedition will help you reduce risks related to using electronic health records, address factors contributing to clinical alarm-related events, including alarm fatigue, improve collaboration across disciplines to ensure patient safety. If those things sound familiar and sound like you want to dig in a little deeper, check out ihi.org expeditions to learn more. All right. Thank you so much, John. All right. We're going to go around the horn here and uh, just some final remarks. Um, you can say them with optimism or <laughs> neutrality. Uh, what to keep your eye on the ball? I mean, we're, we're kind of in the midst of this uh, revolution going on. Uh, so any thoughts about uh, where one can look for bright spots uh, for things going forward and kind of how to stay on top of this? And Anne, why don't I start with you? Um, well, I'd say one bright spot is that, you know, one of my jobs in an academic engineering department is to produce the next generation of people who are going to go out and try to impact the design of these devices, and we're seeing a lot of interest in terms of hiring students with master's and Ph.D. degrees that focus on how to better design um, devices in IT for healthcare. So I'm hopeful that uh, these principles are going to become more widespread in the design of the technology. All right. That sounds great, Anne. Thank you so much, by the way, for your participation today. Sure. Uh, David, what, what about you? Uh, we put you on the spot with a lot of different issues, and I'm sure we'll come back uh, to all of this at this point, but uh, what kinds of things to focus on uh, right now uh, going forward? Well, well, I think the you know the benefit of meaningful use incentives and the whole program is that we have seen the broad adoption of this technology. It's not going away. We're not going back to paper anymore. So now the challenge is how do we optimize what we have to achieve the original goals to improve safety for patients with this technology? And so I do think there's some bright spots coming on uh, on the horizon. 
clearly, I think we're at the early stages of building learning systems, both at the local level, at the vendor level, and at the national level, to try to help in this journey. And I do think we have some resources that have uh, recently come into view that can be really helpful in this journey. One of them is the Safer Guides from the ONC, I think, that you've posted. They're a really great place to start. I think another great place to start is the safety test uh, that's uh, currently offered through, through LeapFrog. That's another great place to start. Uh, and I think we're going to see also the evolution of this technology, uh, not only to improve safety, but how to measure it and measure it in real time and use that in the care of our patients. So I think there are several bright spots to come, uh, but this is going to be a journey. Uh, there's no way around it. And that uh, I think there's been a lot of magical thinking that I just put these systems in my hospital and it's automatically safe. And as Frank said, there's nothing, nothing could be further from the truth from that. The implementation is just the first step on the journey. All right. Thank you so much, David, for all your help uh, and expertise on today's program and helping uh, to plan it. Uh, all right. Frank's going to get some of the last words here. And uh, I, um, in addition to some things maybe you were thinking about saying at the end, Frank, I guess I also want to just put out there, we didn't talk about to what degree uh, patient feedback and patients and families also have a role, uh, particularly as folks are also looking at sometimes some uh, trying to access information too and make sure it's accurate. Not um, Sometimes those are more dedicated websites that are built for those patient portals, but I think that might be something we could come back to at some point and look at what we're learning from patients and families uh, that would also make sense for clinicians too in the electronic health record. Oh, and I agree, Madge. A friend of mine showed me the report she got from her doctor that was all medical ease, and she couldn't understand any of it. And can you imagine if we're opening the record to let people read certain of these comments and they can't understand what they say? Great topic. Uh, I'd just like to wrap up with, uh, remember, as you implement technology, remember to let the technology support how you do your work, not drive how you do your work. When you're investigating an adverse event, think about the role of technology, in this case the EHR and the human interface, how much of it was because of a poorly designed system. And lastly, I'd like to share that a colleague or a leader in the patient safety movement, Dr. Bob Wachter, has written a book called The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age, which will be published in the spring. So thank you, Bob, for your great work, and we look forward to reading all the things that you put into your book and some recommendations for how we might address these issues. So add that to your uh, reading list. In addition to all the resources that's coming out, uh, we think in April 2015, and there is a discussion uh, uh, about uh, the electronic health record in there and a lot of interesting uh, stories as well. So I want to thank Ann Bazance, uh, Dr. David Klassen, Frank Federico. Uh, a lot of time spent with me and on the phone and emails kind of pulling all our information together. We know it's a lot, but we hope that we teed up some stuff that people can uh, work on off of and move forward in their own organizations. You've been a great audience, and uh, don't forget you can download this uh, chat in addition to the slides and everything else we shared on the show today. And by tomorrow up on our website, you, there will be the audio as well. You can find
find that on IHI.org or on iTunes. Next up on WIHI, November 20th, 100 Million Healthier Lives by 2020. Come hear about some very, very exciting work going on, a new guiding coalition for help, a lot of the work that's building off the triple aim. Shoma Stout, Aaron Healy, Ninyan Lewis are our guests, and we hope you'll tune in for that. You can actually sign up now on our website if you'd like. Um, so again, check out uh, the website tomorrow for all the resources. Don't forget about tweeting. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. A great group of people help with this program every time we put it on and in between. That's John Gothier, Matt Morris, Jameson Case, Vicki Minden, Jesse McCall, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, and Lily Stairs, and many more often who uh, don't appear here. Uh, it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. That's still true for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.